0: If you have a Bible this morning and you want to read along with us, we're going to take a reading out of the book of Colossians chapter 1. We're going to read three verses this morning, verses 17 through 19. Colossians chapter 1, verses 17 through 19. This is speaking of Jesus, so we're stepping kind of in the middle of these comments that Paul, the author, is making about Jesus and... We're going to jump right into the middle of them, and we're going to stop in the middle of them. So know that this is part of a larger context, but we want to use these for our thoughts this morning. Colossians chapter 1 verse 17 says this, And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. i conclude our reading this morning, and our title is going to be taken from verse 18, the last part of verse 18. It says, That in all things He might have the preeminence. Thank you, Walt. The title of our message this morning is, Christ, the preeminent one. Christ, the preeminent one. Now, whether the world knows it or not, whether the world knows it and doesn't acknowledge it, whether we acknowledge it as Christians or not, Christ, Jesus Christ, is the center of all things. Everything that was, both in nature, so you have no doubt heard of those things that are supposedly 10 million light years away. That they get these powerful tools to look out far in the galaxy and project how the light bends and they see other parts of the cosmos that no person will ever go to, ever. No matter how long life exists. All of that out there in the void was made for Christ. Your life, everything in your life, from your thoughts, your money, your talents, your interests, your belongings, your breath, your physical body, all of it was made by but also for Jesus Christ. The word preeminent means central or first or exalted, elevated one. And Christ, Jesus, is the center of it all. But let's narrow our focus for a moment because we can talk about the things in the universe and we can talk about nature and we can talk about human beings, but let's narrow our focus just a bit. This word, everything in it, is about Jesus. Now, I didn't know that till I was 19 years old. I remember when I learned it. So I grew up in church, son of a missionary to Alaska, mom, Sunday school teacher. I went through all the stories, went to all the vacation Bible schools, heard about the seven days of creation, memorized the Ten Commandments, required to know the life of Moses and the life of Joshua throughout our Sunday school. Learned about the cycle of the judges in Sunday school. Heard about Samson, Daniel in the lion's den, David slaying Goliath. Heard all the stories. Seventeen, I got called to preach. Stood behind the pulpit and preached and preached and preached. And then one day, listening to a sermon, the Holy Spirit revealed something that as simple as it is, I didn't realize. And that is all of those things that I knew, all of those things that I had learned about all of these men and women in time past were meant to function as a picture of something greater. So I want you to imagine in your mind a collage. My favorite collages are those that have Dozens, if not hundreds, of really miniature pictures. And then you step back and all of it makes one picture. The purpose of the Bible is that all of those miniature pictures would reveal one picture of one man. And his name is Jesus. He's not, I want to be very clear, he's not just a person in the Bible. He's not just a figure whereby we can learn from this prophet or this priest who taught good, honest, moral things and led society perhaps in a better path to obey certain moral precepts that would be beneficial for us. And if we'll just ascribe as a culture to his principles, then we will be better off. No, 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 that idea, though it might be true, falls wildly short of the purpose of Jesus and his life. It's not about us having peace in this life. That's why we follow Jesus. It's not that we might have prosperity in this life. It's not so that we might know how to function. No, the purpose of Jesus is not us. The purpose of us is Jesus. He is the preeminent one. And so we read all of these really weird things in the Old Testament. I mean, to us, they're strange, aren't they? So you got to go and you got to take a certain type of lamb and you got to go take a certain type of turtle dove and you can't pick up steps on the Sabbath or you're going to die and you can't do this and you can't do this. And there's all of these laws that are carved out, 613 laws carved out in the Old Testament. And listen to me, every jot and tittle of every one points to Jesus. And then God speaks to prophets and he says, Moses, I want you to build a building. And here's how I want you to do it. And so he gives all these measurements. Listen to me. God told him how big to build a house or a tent. He wasn't satisfied with Moses picking the material or the color. God concerned himself With the color of a building. So you mean God's got all these things to do. And he's concerned about how big a building is. He had Moses build a box. And he gave very intricate instructions about the box. Not just how to build it. Not just what went in it. How you were supposed to carry it. And there was a man who carried it the wrong way and died. And so people will often look through those stories and they say, that makes absolutely no sense. God is so unjust. But listen to me, all of that was meant to be a picture of Jesus. And what God did not want to happen in the Old Testament is for those men and women To put their fingerprints on the picture of Jesus. And when they would begin to put either intentionally or unintentionally blur the picture. God said no, no, no. That dissatisfies me because it does not bring clarity to this one man that is going to come and do the greatest thing mankind has ever seen. And so God commands him to do all these things. And then we find through the Bible and what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning is. The men of the Old Testament. I am so thankful that I live in this dispensation. Just means this age, this period. One of the chief reasons I'm so thankful is because I find life to be a quandary all the time. Like I find myself almost daily feeling disheartened at not knowing what to do. So many things, so many pressures and responsibilities, so many people who have needs, so much brokenness, both in me and in others' lives, and God has commissioned me and you to go help them. And sometimes I pause and I say, what do I do? How do I do this? And I am so thankful that I have God's word and I can look to men and women of the past who were tempted and tried in the same points that you and I are. Listen, if you ever have the feeling that you're isolated alone, that you're experiencing something unique to mankind, you're wrong. You're just wrong. Nothing you have experienced has not been experienced, not a thousand, not ten thousand, millions of times before. People have experienced exactly what you're experiencing. And God in his word highlighted people. So think of it like this. God knew of these things in us. And so God of his mercy said, I'm going to inspire men. We believe the Holy Holy Spirit breathed the word of God. This is not a source of men. The translation is, there are easy inaccuracies in every translation. But the original breathed words are perfect. And they reveal things about men and women in the past and praise God that they do. And I'm so thankful that God, through His Holy Spirit and through our study of His Word, He can impress things into our very being. And very often, when you know the Word of God in your heart and He's written it upon your heart... You don't even have to open the word because your mind and heart know what his word says. And so as you're driving, your mind can gravitate towards scripture. Your mind can gravitate towards the evidence that God left behind in his word and the stories that God left behind. And God can commune with you there as you begin to read those words that are written upon your heart. And he reveals things through his word that is written on your very heart. I'm so thankful that there's been times in my life when I didn't know what to do and the word was written on my heart and instantly God brought them to my memory and brought peace and solace in a time of discouragement. And so we go through each man, so not each man, but many of the men in the Old Testament this morning and we want to show you How they each point towards Christ. Where better place to start than that first man, Adam. See, but Adam is kind of like an opposite example of Christ. I love how God does this. And in the book of Romans chapter 5, we see this, that, that Paul as he is writing is meant to show us that Adam is a type of a man, and Christ fulfills that type, but to the opposite. You see, Adam was given one very simple law. And think of just how profound it is that one man was given one law. Eve was not given the law. Adam was given the law. And all it involved was this. Don't touch or eat. Now listen, Callan is almost two years old. And he's almost mastered that law. He knows if I touch, if I eat, pain comes. And yet Adam, this alert, aware, spiritually moral being, is given the same instructions and yet falls to the same thing that just a little child does. He did not resist. Notice I said, didn't say he could not resist. He did not resist touching and eating the tree. And from that small, singular moment, every ounce of sin and pain the world has ever experienced has tasted from the fruit of Adam. But Christ... It's quite the opposite of Adam. See, by the time Christ came, there were a lot of laws. You see, there was this, think of it as layers and layers and layers of laws. And so the very top layer, not the top in the sense of the most important, but the most simple layer would have just been the Roman law, the nation in which he lived. They had Hundreds of laws, just like our United States government has hundreds of laws whereby we are obligated and it is our duty to keep those laws. So was Christ, obligated to keep that law. But then underneath that law was a religious and cultural law that was more stringent than the Roman laws that Jews then and now profess their obligation to keep. And there were 613 of those. He had to keep them. But then it goes deeper than that. That's just law number two. Then there's a third law whereby you and I are obligated. And the Bible tells us in Romans chapter 2 that there is a law written on your heart. Every man, woman, and child Has a law that is written on their hearts. And that law informs them of what God is pleased with and what is sin. And the Bible says that God created Adam in his image and that God equipped Adam with a conscience. And the purpose of that conscience is to have its eyes fixed on our behavior and that moral law written upon our hearts and every time we violate in our actions, in our thoughts and in our words, that moral law, our conscience, cries out to us and accuses us of sin. And says, wrong, sinful, repent. notifies us. We can harden our conscience. We can callous our conscience. But that law and that conscience is always, until a man dies, always there. Christ. Such a complicated thing to even try to explain, so I'm not going to. He was the law, yet he had the law written upon his heart because he was human. He took upon our form in all of its frailties. And as hard as those 613 laws were to keep, and as hard as that Roman law may have been to keep, you all get out here on the roads, Brother John, you go a little fast sometimes, don't you? Right? You break the United States law. Christ kept those. Those were the easy part. For him, it was all easy. But then there was this moral law that you and I violate all the time. The lustful glance. The proud thought, the covetous demeanor that we have. And we're so fallen and wretched in sin, we do it, and our conscience tells us that we do it, and we don't even often process it. Like, think of all the ignorant sins that you do you just sin willfully, sins of omission, sins of commission. And you do them habitually. And yet for a series of reasons your conscience is seared and you don't even recognize it. And I don't even recognize it. And sometimes those in our lives recognize it with pristine clarity. But our fallen minds have created a justification and a covering for our sin just like Adam. Until God walks in the garden in the cool of the day. And calls for us. You see Christ had... Many laws to keep. That's why he's the opposite. Adam had one, he had many. Adam failed, I think, in short order. Like I don't think Adam was there for a million years. The Bible doesn't tell us. I don't think Adam was there for a million years. I'll give him a week. Maybe not that long. Maybe a couple days. Maybe a few hours. We don't really know. Let's give him a week. He kept the law. But Christ was tempted and tried like every man for 33 years, humbled himself. You know, oftentimes, have you ever been in a moral dilemma? Those are hard ones, aren't they? So let's say that you're an employee somewhere and your employer is not outright asking you to cheat, lie, steal, but they're asking you to live on the boundary of it. And you have this moral dilemma because you're obligated by your duty to do what you're told. Just like Jesus as a child is obligated by duty to obey his parents. And yet he has a higher calling. And he wants to do both. Every moral dilemma Christ ever found himself in. And here's the the thing, very often you and I are not important enough for people to try to catch us in moral dilemmas. But as we study the book of John on Wednesday nights, they laid traps for him, didn't they? They tried to catch him. Listen, Adam was perfect in nature. And he still fell to this one single law, Christ, day in and day out is tempted and tried in all points like we are through the hundreds, if not thousands of laws that he is obligated to keep, not just every year, not just every month, not just every day, not just every hour or minute, every moment of his existence, it was necessary for him to keep the law. And yet, unlike Adam, he kept it perfectly. And so Adam is this testimony in the Old Testament, this archetype in the Old Testament this symbol of the Old Testament that here is the incomplete one dimensional failing flailing man but there's one coming who will do what Adam could not do and then we don't even turn the page in the Bible and we read of Abel his son and already we see the disgusting Root and depth of sin. Ten sentences is how long the story of Cain and Abel are. And yet it's so profound. And we see the the, the disgusting nature that all you and I share from our progenitor Adam. Even in that second generation. There Cain and Abel go. And they're obligated to perform a sacrifice before God. Cain. Cain. God is not satisfied with his sacrifice. But Abel brings blood to offer God. And God was pleased with the sacrifice of Abel. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 that often the blood of bulls and goats were offered, but they were never able to take away sin. But one man entered into that holy place and offered the blood of himself, a pure and perfect offering. For sin to appease the wrath of God, and there people saw his offering, and they hated him, and they were envious. That's what they told Pilate, wasn't it? That whenever Pilate saw what was going on in the situation, Pilate said in the book of Matthew that they delivered him because of envy. They were envious. Listen, they were going to sacrifice on that very day their own Passover lambs, which were insufficient to take away sin. And yet there Jesus was offering his own life for sin and they moved against him for envy just the way that Cain moved against Abel out of envy and found him in that field and slew him to put an end to Abel that he might not feel convicted for the shortness or how how far short that his sacrifice is fell a pleasing God Abel's sacrifice is meant to point us to a greater sacrifice and that is Jesus offering himself and we turn a couple pages in the book of Genesis and we find a savior not Jesus and not of the soul but Noah of the body there Noah is, living his life in peace, just like Jesus for 30 years. And then God speaks. God speaks to him. You know, in eternity past, you remember when we were reading in John 17 how Jesus wanted to be restored to the glory that he had before the world was. Jesus, before the world was. You see, me and you are not that way. There's this belief within certain cults That like our spirits are just hanging out in heaven and then all of a sudden whenever we're born God like wisps our spirits down. That's not how it happens. At the moment of conception God breathes into a person a spirit. We are not pre-existent. We become existent the moment of our birth. Except for one man. Jesus is and will be but Jesus always was. And there he was in peace, glorified by all the angels, glorified by his Father. And then God commissioned him. Go and obey me at every point and provide salvation for mankind. And Jesus had elaborate instructions, you know. Like remember as we studied the Gospel of John, what we saw was, Jesus did not do anything in his own will. Like he didn't see a man that was blind and say, you know, I feel really bad for that man. I'm going to heal him. He yielded himself in his entirety to the will of his father. And so as the Father permitted the healing, as the Father commissioned the healing, there Jesus would carry out those things. And day after day, moment after moment, person after person who would come within the sphere of influence of Jesus, Jesus continuously, day in and day out, had to be obedient to the Father. And there Noah is, and he's given this instruction that the wrath of God is going to come upon all flesh. Thus you must prepare and. offer for the saving of your home and anyone who will step on the ark then it tells us what is it in the book of Jude maybe that may not be right but we'll go with it this morning That it was Peter that he was a preacher of righteousness Noah was and so we know that he was a bivocational preacher he would go how I imagine in my mind and he would build during the day And then he would go and he would proclaim the truth that there is a wrath of God coming. Please come and get on this. God has told me to prepare an ark for the saving of you and your family. And anyone who will come is welcome to come. And the Bible teaches us that people ignored him, that people did not care what he had to say, that people uh, were disinterested in the message of Noah. and they ridiculed him they made fun of him because they said things like this we've never seen rain before we've never seen this happen before and you're telling us a worldwide flood is coming okay you old senile man you don't know what you're talking about and the Bible tells us in the book of Peter that in our day there will be scoffers that come and say and use the exact same logic I can't see Jesus I've never seen the end of the world Thus for he's not real and he's not coming back and I will not be held accountable for sin and judgment of the wrath of God is not forthcoming. And yet isn't the story of Noah's, this pristine picture so clear within the collage of telling us about that man Jesus as Jesus steps upon the scene and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Run and repent from your sin. And find safety. And he begins to preach a message of self, himself, to the world. Say, trust and believe on the only begotten Son of God. And you'll find safety when the day of wrath comes. And what did they do? Well, they did the same thing that people in Noah's day did. Many of them, not all of them. And many people, the majority of people today do. They distract themselves. They become involved in all manner of things. But how silly it would be to go and build a house the day before the rain came, isn't it? Like if you knew tomorrow, everything in your house is going to be destroyed from a flood. And you're doing renovation. Like we just painted our house this week. If I had knew that a flood was coming today, I wouldn't have painted my house this week. What's the point? It's all going to be destroyed. And that's the message that we so often preach. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on, in, on earth where moth does corrupt and thieves great breakthrough and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven which are incorruptible and fade not away. They're imperishable, that have eternal implications. And so Noah preaches the same message and says, Don't be worried about being married and given in marriage. Don't be worried about childbearing. Don't be worried about building your wealth portfolio. Come and get on the ark that God has commissioned me to build. Nobody listens except for his family, and they get on the ark. And God himself shuts the door. And there they are, safe, from everything that goes on outside. And no matter how loud people screamed, and no matter how people, m- many people beat the door, God himself closed the door. And the Bible tells us, that God the Father alone knows the day and the hour when He will close the door. Not even the Son, not even Noah knows the day God is going to close the door. And in that... Thousands of years ago, a story which has been told in so many cultures, in so many places, in so many languages about Noah building an ark. And people get all concerned about the ecology of the rocks. And people get all concerned about the nature and how it affected things. And all those things are good and testimonies of God and can strengthen our faith. But let's not lose sight of the picture that Noah is depicting a savior that is to come from a spiritual wrath that will come upon the soul of every man, woman, and child who does not repent of sin. And then we find Abraham, the father of nations. From him descend all Jewish people. And yet, the Bible teaches us that in him, all nations, this is the promise that God gave to him both when he was 75 and when he was about 112 years old. Both times, God says, Because of your obedience, in you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. Why? Because a descendant of his was going to be Jesus Christ. And he was going to bring forth a new nation of people. Not with blood that descended from Abraham, but all of us having the blood of Christ and his righteousness imputed to us and then his descendant Isaac, his son. What a picture. Is there any clear picture in all of the Bible of the sacrifice, the atoning sacrifice for sin, than Isaac being taken up, hear me, the same exact mountain Jesus went up to be crucified? Did you know that? Did you know that Isaac was sacrificed on the same mountain Jesus was? Why do you think God did that? Why do you think that a father offered a son on Mount Calvary a little less than 2,000 years before another father offered another son on Mount Calvary? If it was not to be a picture for us of a sacrifice that would take the place of our sin. I love it there, don't you? There he is, he lifts up the knife, in Isaac's case, and an angel stops him. And in Jesus' case, the father lifts up the knife, and there's no angel there to stop him. He finishes the job, and he kills Jesus. And yet in the end, the Bible says in Isaiah 53.10, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Why? Because in bruising him, he doesn't have to bruise You and I, just as I, there's Abraham was, and he sees that ram caught in the thicket. And he doesn't lay a finger on Isaac because the Bible tells us Jehovah Jireh is what that was called because God will provide. And in place of your sin, in place of the punishment you were due, there God called out, no, do not execute eternally those people. Do not let them experience eternal death because I have provided not a ram caught against his will in a thicket, but my only begotten son whom I have sent to the world for the purpose of death. Isaac, what a picture. What about Joseph? Joseph. That brother delivered out of envy to slavery and then rises to be second in authority, right? Just as the Son sits upon the right hand of the Father. And there his brothers came as suppliants, begging for help. We need food. We need water. Our land is parched and we're going to die unless you help us. Comes to Joseph, not knowing who he is. As sinners come today, needing food and water and provision from Jesus. Asking, help me. Please help me. And there Joseph, not... Vindictive? Listen, think about the ways that they acted against Joseph. The evil that they wanted to kill him. And they didn't. They sold him into slavery. And there he spent year after year in bondage. But he was a testament of a better Joseph named Jesus who would come. And he came into the world. And the world was made by him. And the world knew him not. And there Joseph's brothers stood before him. He came unto his own. And his own received him not. And there they stood before Joseph and they didn't know him. And they're distressed because they're asking for help from this man who has all power. Just like Jesus has all power in heaven and in earth. And they finally... Joseph, I love it. He reveals himself to them. And isn't that what God does today? There is none that seeketh after God. There's none that want to know him until he reveals himself to them. And he allows us to embrace. Then he says, listen to this. Come. Live in Egypt. But not just anywhere. Live in the finest parts that Egypt has to offer. And so what do we do? Oh, the famine rages on around us. And people are broken and people commit suicide and people find themselves in the greatest distresses and depressions and anxieties and all these things are on the rise in our society and pain and divorce and all these things rage and rage and rage and you and I have the privilege to be invited by our elder brother to come into Egypt to the finest place and partake of all the blessings that through his wisdom and through his power he stored for us. And we come to this place, this refuge, which is not just the church, it's Christ is our refuge. And we come to him, and the storm rages, and people starve to death. And there we chow down on the bounty and cornucopia of what God has provided, not ever affected by the same things which are the demise to those without. Have you ever seen somebody and they're struggling? I used to have students and they'd cut themselves. Sorry if that was too graphic for kids. They would do that. I would sometimes think, if you only knew, if you only knew there's so much better, there's so much more in life than what you know. And for all the distress, for all the pain that I go through Oh, I know. I always have the comfort of the refuge of Christ and His endless provision. I love what is it the Ephesian writer says, the unsearchable riches of Christ. Why don't we just go to Solomon then? Solomon is a type of Jesus. That's what the picture is painting us to. That woman comes and she begins, she hears about it first. Isn't that great? She's way far away. Some people say 1,500 miles away is how far she was. I don't know how far she was. She was a long way away. And she travels all this way because she'd heard these rumors that he has wisdom beyond imagination. And he has riches beyond imagination. So she travels there day after day. And she gets there. And she wants to see it. And so there he begins to take her on this tour. I wonder how long the tour lasted. What do you think? A week? Two weeks? Three weeks? I mean, you go to places, you go to cities, and you want to see the whole city, right? You want to see all the things that it has to offer. And so you tour, and you leave there after a week or two weeks, and you say, you know, there's so many more things that I was not able to see. And yet we have the comfort and the the luxury of being able to travel so quickly and get places and understand where everything is at. And so here this woman is. How long did she stay? Months? And she goes and she looks at all the riches and all the buildings and all the things, the richness of Solomon and the wealth that God had given him. And she comes to this conclusion. Oh, the half has not been told the wisdom and the riches that you have and if a man stood behind this pulpit and if this church was full of preachers and every day day in and day out hour after hour morning and night we proclaim just one attribute of Christ just about his wisdom just about his riches and we preached and we preach and we preach and, and a thousand years came by one of us could give a benediction by simply saying this not even the half has been Told of the riches of Jesus Christ. His riches are inexhaustible. Why is heaven going to be eternal? Because His wisdom and His beauty is inexhaustible. And so you'll be there for a trillion years, 10 trillion years, and you are as if you have not even found the smallest gold coin in the riches of God and who He is. What about a warrior? We find many of those in the Bible, don't we? Joshua and his conquest for the promised land. Isn't that awesome? He's on this conquest. I love that picture. He's got an enemy. And listen, you can't be a soft man and go on a conquest. Your hands have to be stained with blood. And your brow has to be stained with sweat. You have to be strong and purposed and resilient and have fortitude. And there Joshua was, standing on the banks of the Jordan, hearing God's call. Go and conquer. And there God the Father was. Sending his warrior son, Jesus. And he says, Jesus, go and conquer. And then, much like David, that warrior, who became a warrior as a little boy, right? A little ruddy boy. And there he stands against an enemy who had never been defeated. Never been defeated. Goliath, a champion of men. And there we look at the Old Testament. How many millions came in that dispensation of time? And all of them lost their battle to death. Every man died. Every woman died. And if time goes on, you and I, a thousand generations from now, every single person will lose to death. But this man, Jesus, our warrior, conquering king, does not stand out there with a great sword, does not come with pomp and circumstance like a king being having a coronation, does not proclaim himself to be someone he is not, but rather comes cloaked in meekness and humility and obedience to his Father and love and joy and peace and long suffering and gentleness and kindness and faith, Jesus comes like David and peers at that enemy and with, with his life gives it, and he conquers death and three days later he rises again and stands over death and laughs at how he had defeated that champion who had boasted against him where is your sting death where is your victory no you lie down there death that's why Jesus took captivity captive he conquered and killed death itself and now all who trust in him through his victory like those children of Israel who had cowered there scared for 40 days There they sat, and they were afraid. And there Goliath would come out every day, and he'd say, come fight me. And all of them would sit, and they would be afraid. And then death is defeated, and they all rise up, and they cheer. And they run across, and they enjoy the spoils that David had won. Guess what? God invites you to come. He's not angry about it. That's why he won. It's because he wants you to run across the field of victory and to grab all the things that the unsearchable riches of Christ have to offer you. David is a picture of Jesus. His son Solomon, a picture of Jesus. Joshua, a picture of Jesus. Let me begin to close by saying this, but every one of those men, they're all pictures all this part of this collage that point towards Jesus and yet at that time nobody knows you know like they know there's a figure that is coming and the bible even tells us in the case of Moses that there will be a prophet arise like Moses powerful in word and in deed but it was this silhouette and they never knew when he was going to arise he never knew when he was going to come. But there was this silhouette that, as time went on and more men rose up, and God used those men to symbolize different aspects of Jesus. But I want to point out something about all those men. All of them, with not one exception, had devastating flaws. All of them. Abraham was a liar. David was an adulterous murderer, Moses was a murderer, Solomon was covetous and he was he was idolatrous. And all of those men we can walk through and we can see flaw, but not a small one. We call them the heroes of the faith. That's kind of true. No, they were flawed, very flawed men. And the Bible is very explicit in pointing out their flaws for one purpose. So that when Jesus steps on the scene, cloaked with all the characteristics that each of those men had, yet without sin, there Jesus would be the preeminent one. And all of these men would stand around him and bow at the feet of Christ, the preeminent one. Because as powerful as Samson was, his power was nothing compared to Jesus. And as honorable as Joseph's activities were, they were no close, nowhere close to as honorable as Jesus. I thought of another one, the suffering servant. Job, oh that poor man Job! You often think all oh, the horrible things that were poured upon him, and it was horrible things poured upon Job. And yet, does it come anywhere close to the horrible things that were poured upon that suffering servant? Jesus, Is that why, like Jeremiah, he was a weeping prophet standing over the city of Jerusalem saying, Why did you not come to me? The purpose of our message this morning is to place Christ before us as the preeminent one. If all of those men and all of the stories of their life were meant to point to Jesus... What do you think that the story of your life is meant to do? What do you think that your boastings about the characters that God has the character qualities God has graced you with what do you mean, what do you think those things are meant to do but then to point the world to Jesus? Isn't that what Jesus said on the Sermon on the Mount? Let your light so shine before men. let your virtues let your qualities that are in the similitude of God. Let them shine before men. Why? So that it can point them to God. It could point them to Jesus. And so when you see these men in your life, when you see these women in your life that you hold in high esteem and you come to them and you begin to honor them just like those people did when they came to Paul or when they came to Peter and they bowed down and they said, get up, we're not men of importance. We're not men of, we're not gods. Stand up. God is God and he is the preeminent one. I look back and I think growing up, That's the only mistake that my Sunday school teachers made. They pointed perfectly to the stories. But they just forgot one little detail to tell me the point of them. And that was that they represent Jesus. So let me be clear today. Everything. Everything you see. Every story you know. Every breath that is breathed is woven together by God to be a picture that points the whole world to Jesus. So why wouldn't you come to him? Why wouldn't you run to him? Saved friend, why wouldn't you yield your life in obedience to honor him? Like, isn't it appropriate, no matter how you feel, to praise Him every day? Let me tell you this. If you're a Christian, here's a sign that you're immature in your Christian faith. Your praising of God is dictated by your feelings. No, 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 no. No, when you realize that God is bigger than my circumstance... And just because I praise Him, I'm not trying to do a backdoor deal to where He'll bless me. No. He may not be like Job and restore me what I've lost. I may lose it, and I may lose it forever. And yet, Lord, until my dying day, I will praise You. There will always be praise on my lips, no matter the circumstance it has. Let that be your prayer. Not that you can do that. God has to grace you to be able to do that. This morning, I lay before you Christ, the preeminent one. And here's my only hope from the message, that you'll worship him. That's it. You don't need to do anything for me? You don't need to do anything for this church? Worship him. Worship, what does it mean? Bow down at him. And do this one. Every time you read a story in the Bible, every time you do your devotional, look for Jesus. He's hiding there. And often, let me say this, he's not hiding there. He's hiding in plain sight. But our minds cloud the ability to see him. So look for him. And when you find him there in his word, pause and praise him. I love that he's in the garden. I love that he's in the Garden of Eden. I love it. Genesis three, fifteen. There he is, as plain as day, Jesus Christ. And there we find him in Revelation, the very last chapter, the very last verses. The Spirit and the bride say come, and let him that heareth they come, and let all that are athirst come and drink of the water of life freely there is Jesus.